folks. This is your host, Tammy Turner, and you are now listening to the Tierra Talk Show. We bring you rare interviews with the makers of Disney magic. Whether they be singers, actors, imagineers, animators, they've all made their mark on the Disney name. To find out more about the show and other episodes, head to our official website at www.thetierratalkshow.com. Be sure to look below at the show notes in the show more section for links to our Twitter and Facebook pages, including videos and websites mentioned in the following interview. Photos and audio clips that are featured in the show belong to their rightful owners and are used for educational purposes only. All guests' opinions are theirs and theirs alone and do not represent the opinions of the Tierra Talk Show or the host. The Tierra Talk Show is not associated with the Disney Company. Thanks again for tuning in to this week's episode. And from all of us here at the Tierra Talk Show, have a hoop-de-doo day. Excited to welcome this week's Tierra Talk Show guest, former executive vice president and executive producer for the Walt Disney Entertainment, Ron Logan, to the show. Welcome, Ron. Thank you very much. So can you talk a little bit about your first job at the Disneyland Park when you first began working for the Disney company in, in the 1960s? Oh, my gosh. Actually, my first job was in 1958, oh, wow. three years after the park opened, and it was the first Christmas uh, parade with the original toy soldiers from Babes in Toyland. I was a pampered wow. trumpet player. So I did that the first Christmas, did Candlelight in that year, which was a very small version of it in Town Square. Uh, and then I went to uh, the Olympics in 1960, the Winter Olympics, and became a fanfare trumpeter for Disney that did the pageantry for that in 1960 for the, the Winter Olympic Games. So uh, from then on, I was a consultant for 18 years, did all kinds of stuff, wrote scripts, produced shows, parades, all that kind of stuff, and then went full-time with the company in 1977, and then the rest of it, just a long story. I, I, I'm just kind of baffled because I love every single show you've ever done. Um, can I list them? my favorites? Uh, I have Hunchback of Notre Dame, The Stage Show, yeah. Voyage of the Little Mermaid, Fantasmic, Beauty and the Beast Live on Stage. It, the list goes on and on, and I just can't imagine. How are you, how are you connected with these projects? I was a producer of all those, uh, responsible for all those, uh, which is in... I was a vice president of entertainment when I came to Florida. Um, I'd been in Florida as a man, as a music director, and I went to California as, as director of entertainment for two and a half years. Came back to Florida with the opening of Epcot, so I literally was producer of all entertainment uh, from Epcot all through the other uh, what ten parks because um, they had a response for eleven parks through the years up to when I retired. So anything that was done on live entertainment in the parks I was responsible for. And then my last 10 years from 1990s, basically, I was responsible for live entertainment worldwide. So anything that had live entertainment in it, including Super Bowls or movie premieres or anything like that, I was responsible for. Now, would you just direct them, or would you write these uh, scripts and then actually show the uh, actors what they have to do on stage? It would depend on what it is. You know, I started as a, uh, <clears throat> a music person. I had a dance background, so I knew about that. Uh, I was good at blocking things on stage. 
uh, I, again, I knew about dancing and all that because I was a tap dancer when I was a little kid. Uh, I was also a Golden Glove boxer, so if he made any any problem with it, in fact, I was a tap dancer, I was show you my Golden Glove, so look out. So <laughs> anyway, uh, uh, I did spot everything. I wrote scripts. I directed things. I collaborated with other people, um, you know, would conduct musicals, like when I taught at high school and college, I would do that. Uh, so I did just about everything. And then a producer is really responsible for everything that happens. An executive producer is where the buck stops. And the executive producer basically deals with whoever the main client is on the project. My main client became Michael Eisner, and he was really my direct boss in regard to giving me direction. So he would say, um, Ron, I want you to do a show based on this or, or come up with an idea of what you would do with this. And then I would go put the teams together, uh, which was really one of my strong suits, I think, because I always was good at that. And then that, that team I would leave, uh, lead, and I would, uh, as a producer, you would you would call the meetings and find out how the projects were going. Sometimes I had direct direction I'd give them regard to what I thought should happen. Other times I'd ask them, well, tell me what you think you would do. Uh, sometimes I would do, assign two or three teams to the same project and, and see what they would do and the result would maybe be a combination of ideas from all three teams. So I learned how to do that kind of stuff. I uh, became quite successful with it because I had great people. And then one thing just evolved into another thing. And like when I got in Beauty and the Beast and Disney Theatrical, that came out of an idea I had about taking the movie to Broadway. And that was a major step in my career because that show is still out there after 20 years. You know, it's close to $3 billion in profit at one little show. Was there any particular project that you recall was just very difficult to um, complete on time or just, um, you know, difficult with with uh, stage effects? You see, to be honest, Tammy, the problems I had were not in producing the project, the product. It was dealing with the operational aspects of the product. Mm. Because the operation people had to ultimately pay for that product, and they always wanted to have some say in regard to what the product was. And uh, some of them were good at it, some of them weren't good at it. Um, I don't know if you remember the name Lee Cockrell or not, but Lee is a great friend of mine, and he led operations at Disney World and was very concerned that the operator should have a say in regard to the, the evolution of the product. <clears throat> so we worked for a year and a half on what that process might be, and um, we used it for about a year. Once we came up with it, it, it ended up being too involved to really make any sense. But we really attempted to do that. So the most of the trouble I had was with people that, for one reason or another, didn't want to do what we wanted to do. They wanted to spend that amount of money, or they didn't like the concept, maybe. Um, and you know, when it came to that, then I had to do a better sell in regard to what the concepts were. But I was always cognizant of what the operator, who was the client, wanted to have because it, the more, the closer you can come to that expectation, the better off you're going to be in the long run. A couple of your projects are still out in the parks, like Illuminations, uh, Beauty and the Beast Live on Stage, Voyage of the Little Mermaid, and some have unfortunately um, been removed from the parks. Um, were you just there for the beginning stages of the project and just to make sure it, it sent off and it was working and okay? Once it was produced... I was responsible forever. It's a thing, it's like having a kid. Once you have the kid, you're responsible for that kid. And 
I would fight the battles to make sure the operating people didn't change the show because many times they would try to because of costs. Like, like on parades, for example, uh, I had a rule worldwide that says I do not want any parade in any of the Disney theme parks to have less than 125 people in the parade. Because you start messing with those numbers, and all of a sudden you don't have a parade to the quality that, that Disney expected to have. And I would have to police that because, you know, I'd be on my on my airplane trips around the world, and somebody would let me know, hey, the so-and-so in a certain park just reduced the number in the parade to 95 people or something. Well, the first thing I had to do when I got back to that park is give them hell about you can't do that because you don't do it to WDI. WDI never allowed that to happen. But you had to police, police it because entertainment was one of the easiest things to cancel, and it was one of the expensive things in American operation because you had to pay the salaries and the health plans for all those people. So I did have to police it and stay on top of it. And when entertainment was dis, was reorganized to be profit center related, that's when all of that kind of went away. So now basically uh, there is a responsibility from the creative people to the product, but it is not like we had it before where we were able to police it and not allow the operators to make changes they want to make. Now they'll, they'll make changes and a lot easier for them to do it because there's less, there's less uh, hassle in regard to them being able to do that. I always had this, the feeling that you're not going to maintain any consistent quality with something unless you, you have the control of that product. Absolutely. And you officially retired from the Walt Disney Company uh, in 2001 after working for the company for 23 years. And um, I still love going back to see some of these shows, um, especially Fantasmic. Uh, Fantasmic is just so big and bright, and I love it so much. And um, I, I got to go to Disneyland for the first time this past summer and see Fantasmic there. And I saw the differences they had between those shows. So yeah. how, how do you work with... Um, with shows that are different from other parks, do you want to make sure there's at least one thing different about them, or is it just you want to update the uh, actual attraction? It it depends on where it started first. You know, because where it started first had its own requirements based upon the logistics and the reason it started in the first place, right? Mm -hmm. And when Eisner came along, he wanted everything to be synergistic. So any show that we did prior to Eisner, it was kind of eclectic, you know, and you could throw all kinds of stuff in it. But when he came in, like he was the first one that said, I want a show based on Latin, or we did a parade, or I want a show based on Lion King, or whatever. We had never done that before. Um, and, it, you know, it was a real challenge to be able to do that, because how do you take a 90-minute movie and make it a, a park show that people are going to like? And uh, we did that with Beauty and the Beast, and Beauty and the Beast was so successful, that's where I got the idea for the Broadway version of it. So, uh, to answer your question regarding that, um, the each park will be different because each park each park is different. It's got different people that go to it. It's got different climates. It's got different different things you have to deal with. So you have to consider that as you produce whatever you produce. So there's no two shows exactly like anywhere in the world. We started fantastic at Disneyland, and we used the island out there that we had to change over doing the show because we could not make it look, uh, you know, different all the time because WDI had control of what the island looked like. So to me, the Disneyland Fantasmic was always much more theatrical because you changed the island in addition to the show itself. Mm -hmm. At Disney World, we built this big arena, which nobody was ever in unless we had the show going. 
so WDI didn't worry about what it looked like. Now, originally, Fantasmic in Florida was to be 3,000 seats. So the show was built for 3,000 seats. Now, to my dismay, they have 9,000 seats. Oh, my goodness. And there's too many seats. There's too many, in my opinion, too many bad seats in there. And that show was quite different anyway because it was the second one we did. Yes. And Eisner wanted all his new stuff in it. So it had more of the, the, the most recent Eisner st- films in that. Uh, and then I was convinced that we should do this live middle section, which I really, to be honest with you, never liked too much the, the whole thing, uh, you know, on Pocahontas. Because to me, it was, was not within the genre of, of really technical entertainment that we were doing mm-hmm. uh, when you do the live show with people swinging on ropes and stuff like that. And it works, but it, to me, it was never it was never my favorite because of that. Uh, you mentioned Hunchback of Notre Dame. That's probably the closest show we ever did in the park to theatrical stuff you would do on Broadway. And that show was quite successful. It was it, it, that show was there a long time, even after the movie closed, because the movie wasn't all that successful. Yes. But the show had a heart to it. It's because we had that thrust stage that came out in the middle. For the first time, they were using live singers, not lip syncing or anything. They were singing live and uh, on mics and um, my, with my step toward theatrical. That's really where I gained a lot of experience in regard to that show. And the performers we had in that show were never absent. I mean, because this, the music was so great. And the, you do a show that's, that's successful, you'll have no absenteeism. <laughs> because the book out their performers love doing it. I love the show, and I, I got to speak with um, one of the directors of the film, Gary Drowsdale. And mm-hmm. Gary, um, Gary had heard that there was a show, and we were discussing the song Hellfire that is used in the movie, and unfortunately is not used in the show. Very popular song for Disney fans who love the who love the song and the character Frollo. Was Disney very protective of using that song? No, we didn't. We didn't make any big deal. We, you know, we our problem always is how do you take a ninety-minute movie and you do a thirty-minute show? Actually, uh, the Hunchback show is about forty minutes. We broke our own rule of thirty minutes on a stage show. Our normal rule was uh, atmosphere entertainment is twenty minutes, stage show thirty minutes, a parade is thirty minutes in essence. So it just didn't appear because we didn't see a reason for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and other than that. Um, the show really followed the movie, and we oh, used yeah, puppetry absolutely. for your member, and that's another reason it works so well. It's puppetry uh, uh, that we used in there. Uh, it that show just had a lot of heart because of the performers. I mean, I remember the gal who was in there for a long, long time would sing that song. She would tremble at the end of that song because she would be in that thrust stage out in the middle of the audience. She would be trembling because she really got into it. It was just a it was a thing where the cast really got into it because they enjoyed doing it. You know, there's there's a uh, an operational video that was made of that show. It's the best of all the shows of, that we have in the archives because they, they actually did it with several cameras and spent money introducing the characters. You know, I have a lot of documentary, documentary uh, footage that we did because we really re- re- did documentary footage on every show to document what it looked like, you know. Wow. It's really good. I mean, it's very good. And it's as good as anything that I see. That It shows a performance. It was a great performance. It was all done in one performance. It was done live. It shines. 
and it's a beautiful story and it's it's nothing that you usually see in films and it's uh, yeah. you know Quasimodo does not get the girl and Quasimodo accepts the way he is um, right. and he's a beautiful person inside and out so I think it's a beautiful story I wish it still was in the parks um, we get to you see- know we, we we Tammy we had another quick story we had a guy named his name was Bobby something who auditioned year after year to be a kid of the kingdom. And he was a great performer, singer, dancer, but he was too short. He was just a little guy. And we, and because we had kids who came, they had to be a certain height and all that. So I think he auditioned six years in a row. Wow. I never got it. But then comes along this show, and all of a sudden we need a short person. Well, he was phenomenal in that show. He played the hunchback in that show, and he was a phenomenal performer. And it just... I was so delighted that the the show itself provided the opportunity for him to come out and really show his stuff. That was really cool. He must have fun just swinging, um, not swinging, but, you know, pulling on the rope and it pulls him right back up. (laughs) That looks so fun. I wanted to do it. (laughs) That's that's really a feat for that stage, too, because that stage was was so cruel. I mean, uh, uh, so crude in regard to technology, because we never had any technology at all in the parks. I mean, when we did... um, what is it we did with for Eisner? We did uh, Dick Tracy. Yes, I do. We made it take out Hollywood. Hollywood. Uh, it required us to have sets and stuff, and every set that moved, a person had to move it. It was not automated ever, so it was very expensive to hire enough people just to move the stuff around. Because we never had that built into our stages ever in those days. There's another parade that people still talk about. Uh, it's the Tapestry of Nations parade. Um, yeah. And also Tapestry of Dreams. So that that sort of came about during the new millennium. I remember being there when it first started. I remember seeing Illuminations, Reflections of Earth, too. I remember seeing it on TV when the new year came. They were playing the music to Illuminations with yeah. all the fireworks from around the world. And it's just so sad because Epcot does not have a parade. And, they, and I, I still think they should. Do you know why they kind of stopped doing the Tapestry of Nations? I know they did Tapestry of dreams to make it a nice transition just from away from the new millennium. Right. We would create a parade that would last year or two, and that would end up being year five. Tapestry of Nations was built because of the difficulty of doing parades at Epcot, because the World Showcase is so big, and there are spots where you can be on one side of it, and you can look and see the parade on the other other end. So we built we built that very uniquely. We were going to have five the same parades. In other words, five of the same things at the same time simultaneously. So no matter where you were on the on the showcase, you got the parade. You didn't have to wait for it to come to you. We ended up doing three places, uh, and we ended up doing doing two versions. The parade came out twice a night. Once one that had to do with diversity, and the second time they came out, it was called Unity. So they, all the, we put all the like. I call them floats together. Um, by the way, in that parade, we we use no language. People think there's a language in the song that we've had, but it was not. It was just phonetics. It's much like what Cirque du Soleil does in their shows. Mm-hmm. There's no real language. You're, you're just making it sound like there is because it went to the human voice. One reason to be very difficult to do again is we had all those giant drum floats that we had. Yes. And we had quite a few of them, uh, I think maybe 10 of them or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted to, when we that parade closed, which it was scheduled to close after the first year, so it was not any big big surprise. And it closed basically because it cost money, and people didn't want to pay the money for it. But to me, 
I thought it added so much because of the thought we had put together in the parade, like all the colors related to the colors of all the countries that were in there. And there are a lot of subliminal things that we would do in coming up with the concept, with the concept of what the seat was for it that really added to what it is. And, and the floats were so unique. Uh, they can you can actually touch somebody. You know, uh, those floats were in the Guggenheim Museum for for a, about a year, displayed as works of art. And I was really I knew it was going to close, and it was really sad when we did close it. Uh, I wanted to get one of those drum floats and take it to UCF and use it with their marching band because that'd be a big <laughs> great thing for them. But I didn't get to to it soon enough. It had been destroyed, and oh, no. we looked at building a new one. It would cost about forty thousand dollars. I said, well, that's out of the question. We're not going to do that. I don't know if you remember, but originally Epcot had no characters in it at all. That's Michael right, Knight, yes. Right? yes. It was supposed to be a permanent world showcase and totally different brand because Walt did not want to build another theme park, period. It was WDI decided to go ahead and do that. Uh, and uh, Marty Sklar talks about that in his book and so forth, and how that all occurred. Um, and uh, when characters were put in there, I put them in there as they were visiting. You know, I always had this saying that Characters live in the Magic Kingdom, they visit Epcot, they work at the studio, and they have their pets at the Animal Kingdom. Yes. <laughs> because you'd have to, you know, but then that evolved into characters at Epcot that I thought had no business being there. And, and when Mickey and the seven classic characters were there, they were on a bus. They were like a tourist. They had a camera on their neck yes. with sunglasses and they were not any country. And then that evolved into, mainly because the marketing felt it would work, Snow White in Germany and Pinocchio in Italy and all that, and then Robin Hood in UK. But when I go out there now and I see Chip and Dale out there around a bunch of trees, I think, what the heck are they doing here? You know, Chip and Dale, they're not, you know, they're not squirrels. What are they doing? There's no reason. But I know why they're there, because the kids like them and all that kind of stuff. So it, it comes down to... The Changing wants. the theming so they can be more successful in regard to the money. It's, it's a financial issue that relates to it. Mm -hmm. That's the same thing with the parade. If you looked at Epcot of needing a parade, it needs a parade. But it costs money to do a parade. So it's like, well, can we get away with not doing it? I think, uh, I agree with you, something should be there. You know, should be done in some ways, or or let's increase the live entertainment that's out there. Yeah, every other park has a parade, and Epcot's the only one that doesn't. Well, and, and the other thing, Tammy, is that it was built for a parade. Really? It has a circular parade route. It was built for a parade in the very beginning. There are only three parks in the Disney World that have the World of Disney that have three that have circular parade routes. One is Epcot, one is Tokyo Disneyland, and one is Tokyo Disney Sea. Wow. And it's the most efficient use of parades because you don't waste time tramming people at the beginning of the parade. You, they go in, they do a circle, they come right back out. And it is the most efficient way to produce a parade. Um, to me, the worst the park we have is the studio because it was not built for a parade. Mm, yes. There's no room for a parade. And any, and any parade you do in there is going to have a challenge because of the, the route that is chosen for it because the way it's built without, with that L-curved thing that they've got there uh so to me parades don't work there unless they're eclectic like i thought the toy story parade worked really well there because when's eclectic kind of a thing when you try to tell some kind of story with a parade in the studio i don't think it works although i do it's think difficult. the the uh, motor car parade is very cool well we had we had to put a parade in there 
and a stage show in there and a spectacular in there with only six months because before Eisner, it was not before he made a decision, it was not going to have those things. It was going to have state, seven street performers doing mime. And all of a sudden, he needed a stage show. So we did Hollywood, Hollywood. He needed a parade. We did stars and cars and with people that put their hands in cement and stuff. And they were interviewed. And then we had Sorcery in the Sky, which was a nighttime show. We had a big inflatable on top of the uh, Chinese theater. So yeah. um, that that is a terrible place to watch a parade, a terrible place to do a parade. Speaking of which, um, you worked on the grand opening ceremonies for Epcot, Disney's MGM Studios, and uh, Disney's Animal Kingdom. We did all the live show that was required. We At Epcot, we did, what is it, I would say, we did 23 shows and... 21 days. Wow. Different shows. Because everything opened. Everything there was had a dedication opening. Wow. So we did that. And then we had a 300-piece marching band. We marched in the rain because it always rains on October 1st. You know? <laughs> uh, uh, it was a magnificent thing that we did. You know, It was an amazing thing. We had 23 different groups from around the world. And wow. It's one of those amazing kind of things. Um, at the, you know, at Disney MGM, we, it rained too, and we did a show there, the opening, and then we had the grand opening of the Animal Kingdom, was quite proud of this, where we had the Flying Eagle in, in the show and all that. Uh, yeah, I was there for all those things. Well, there's one thing that needs to be said, though, you know, the only thing that's constant in this world is change. Yes. And things need to change, and I'm a believer in that, you know, I... I believe, yeah, there's great things to appreciate and to experience, but if it's if it feels old and it is old, then get on to the new thing. Because that's really what all of us who were creative people still think of this day. You know, I'm an older guy <laughs> these days, but I still think as a kid. And it's creative people tend to do that. And you want to keep up with the times and you want to change with the times. I don't like it sometimes when you just throw out old stuff just to throw out old stuff, you know. Um, and I think there could be ways of dealing with that. Uh, like I've heard, because I was, again, able to see some of the floats from that new parade in the Magic Kingdom. Or at the, uh, yeah, the Magic Kingdom. And I've heard great things about it. I've heard people raving about it. It's the best parade's been done maybe in 10 years, you know. It's beautiful. Really nice. And I think it is. I'm just excited about that. And some of the floats I saw is just extremely artistic. And I thought, wow, they're really doing it right now. You know, it's not just a bunch of junk out there that somebody throws out there and you do a rap tune to. You know, it's not. It goes back to Walt. And I teach about Walt every day, you know. You need to be creative. You need to give people exciting things that they're, they're going to love. And that will make you money. Don't think about it the other way. What will make us money? Then try to create something, because it won't. You won't get it there that way. I contend. I'm happy about the Disney Company. I'm happy of, of of how it's evolving itself. But too many times, when I look at it, if I want to be critical, it's about the fact that it's too much about money and not enough about the product. You give a, you give people a good product, they will they will pay for it. Take those things that work, like the electrical parade, and cherish them, and they're around forever. And then you get the other things you've come up with. As far as Frozen going someplace, I think it needs to do something. I'm not sure it should be an Epcot, but because of what we just talked about. But certainly, it's it's a major film that's going to have a major influence on the future of animated movies in the world. And I think that's great because because for in my opinion, some of the movies we've had. 
uh, you know, before that didn't measure up to that at all. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm glad that the fact that the company is really getting to where they're measuring up. I just wanted to let people know, uh, you were inducted into the Disney Legends in 2007. What was that like? Fantastic. It was like, um, I didn't know what was going to happen. Uh, I didn't even know much about the program. And I, when I heard it was, I, I said, what is that? And they said, well, you're going to be among these people. And uh, my gosh, you know, I, it's just an honor that this unbelievable. It's like, wow, really? You know, and uh, when you see the other people that are with you, like Betty White's and Robin Williams, and and we, when I go to the the events, which I do, and a lot of times I'm invited to talk to them, I, those are my fraternity brothers and sisters, and it's just so. You know, it, one thing it does, Tammy, it it, it heals any wounds you have left. <laughs> you know, if you live, if you're involved in a major company, creative company like at Disney for a long time, you get a lot of scars and wounds, and sometimes some of them take a long time to heal. Mm-hmm. But it's something like it's like you meet a you make you get to a plateau, and this, the reason I said it that way, some guys that are legends too. When we were working together, I didn't want to see them. We didn't like each other very much, you know. <laughs> and now we now we appreciate who we are because we're allowed to, because we've kind of been pulled through the knothole and we made it to the other side. And the world is terrific to deal with people, uh, you know, on a positive basis that you, that were in reality were really negative as you went through it. So it really is a healing process. It It's just more important than even the title is, even though, my wife says I'm a legend in my own mind, you know, uh, it's more than that. It really is a, it really is a big deal to those of us who made it through. And we all kind of say, gee, why me? You know, why not all these other people? And it's just, it's really cool. And I, I really congratulate the Disney company for continuing that. And they also gave you, a window at Magic Kingdom that says Ron Logan leading the band into a new century for the Main yeah. Street Music Company. That's amazing. Well, it, it, it it's fun too, and they also WDI when they give you that because Marty Sklar is the guy that decides on those things. You know what they're going to be, or he did when he was working with the company WDI, and they give you a miniature copy of it that I have in my my in my media room at home. I have all my Beauty and the Beast memorabilia from you know, breaking all Broadway records with Beauty and the Beast on Broadway and all that. And then I have my Legends trophy in there, and I have my window in there on the wall, a duplicate of it, and it looks just like it, you know, with the name and stuff. And I have my, I actually have a fanfare, gold-plated fanfare trumpet. I'm not going to tell you where I live because it's gold-plated. But, <laughs> no worries. Um, that Disneyland gave me when I retired that I'm proud of because it, they they recognized me for doing the Olympics in 1960. Wow! With that trumpet, and they and they went and found the original design for the banner and had a banner made. So it's an acrylic glass case. I'm really proud of that too. So got a lot of stuff to be proud of. And the, one last thing I want to tell you: it wasn't all me. It was the team I had who allowed me to get the credit. It, and it's uh, it's just the way it works. You don't do anything without a team of people, without being, having people to support you through thick and thin, because it's a tough business we're in, mm-hmm. you know. And it's the people 
like Walt said, you know, it's the people that make the difference. Mm-hmm. And it's the team you have that make the difference. Like all the things we've talked about today, I, it came out of my people that were assigned to the project. Mm-hmm. You know, and the fact that they just worked their rear off on it. I, to Every time I talk about how Disney fireworks are simultaneously, the shows are created simultaneously on the music and the and the and the pyro. You know, my students sometimes don't believe me when I say that, but it is. You know exactly what's going to happen on bar one forty and B three as far as what's going to be what the show is going to be. <laughs> and that's the way Disney does it, and it's that's why their shows are so much better than any other any of the fireworks shows, in my opinion, in the world, because of the effort. There's no accident; things are going to be successful because you plan them to be successful. Now the audience has to say, yeah, it was. But we never gambled too much. I, I don't remember, Tammy, of a show we ever did that didn't open and then and then was not successful to some point. And there's some shows I didn't like because of, like, I didn't like Dick Tracy because I didn't think the movie was worth it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and there's a few other things that you could point to, um, you know, like uh, uh, Light Magic Parade in Disneyland and so forth that didn't meet this expectation but generally we did because we knew we would i mean it's the expertise of the people because we're honest with each other and tough on each other was the best we could possibly do with the people that were there and we knew it was going to be successful at some point because we knew what our product needed to be i mean you look at it the reason these shows have lasted so long is because of that effort before you spend one dime in regard to what you're going to produce and what the end result needs to be. And that that is a Disney secret formula. You know, people ask me all the time about that. You know, why are what does Disney tend to work most of the time? Is it because nothing is ever done spontaneously. Everything is always thought out and looked at and looked at and looked at and looked at and looked at. And if you use that as a formula, you're going to be successful most of the time. Again, I love all the shows that you've done. So it's just so exciting. And um, and so I have three more questions for you. These are uh, three questions I ask all of my guests. They're called the okay. Donald, Goofy, and Mickey questions. So they're okay. fun, just fun Disney questions. So we'll start out with the Donald one. The Donald one is, as a child, what Disney film would you always like to watch over and over and over again? I never watched Disney films as a child. Really? Okay. I was born a long time ago. I didn't have a, my family didn't have a TV set until I was junior in high school. Wow. And I grew up in, I grew up in the Midwest where we saw, I never remember seeing anything but Hanna-Barbera cartoons. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I didn't know who Mickey Mouse was. Well, our goofy question is, what Disney character do you think would be your best friend if you met them in person? Oh, my gosh. Hmm. Mickey. That's a good choice. I love Mickey. Well, he just he's in charge. I'm a control <laughs> I'm a control freak freak. <laughs> and I and I was I was the one that had to take care of him in the world, you know. I I mean I was the Mickey guy. But that that's a great transition since Mickey is your favorite character, so we'll end with our Mickey question. So if you had to name any Disney song at this very moment, what immediately comes to your mind? When he was upon a star. It's interesting. We we played tricks with that. I, m- I remember doing the Super Bowl in Atlanta where 
Jimmy Stig up there said, I don't want any Mickey Mouse in the show in Atlanta. So I didn't put him in the show in Atlanta. I, I put him in the show at Epcot. So we started the whole show with him at Epcot. <laughs> but in Atlanta, we had a music written for the show, which featured the music from Illumination 2000 and Tapestry of Nations. And the very end of it, there's a line in the orchestra that goes, da, 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 and it goes, Wish Upon a Star along with it. You know, it's subliminal that's in there. But when I hear it, I go, there we did. We got him. Well, thank you so much, Ron, for coming on the show. It's such an honor and a pleasure to be talking with amazing Disney legends such as yourself. So thank you again for all you've done working for the Disney company and putting these shows together. And thank you to your team as well. Well, I enjoyed it very much, and you're very knowledgeable. And I like to see that. Oh. The people, young people like you know so much about the history because it's important for all us old people to know we just didn't do it and then it all went away and disappeared someplace Imagination, huh? <laughs>